hope you're there in the book of Haggai. Haggai. And we'll read a few verses and then pray together. Haggai chapter number one. And let's begin in verse one. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and and thankful, Lord, that you've led me to this text, this passage, this book, and at this time in your wisdom. And I pray you'll speak to our hearts. Thank you for our faithful people. We pray for the workers, the young people, and the other buildings, Lord, that you'll bless them as well as they memorize your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Haggai is a wonderful little prophetic book for the people of God at a critical and important time in the nation's history. The Jewish exiles are now returned back to their homeland following their captivity in Babylon, and they're now sort of struggling to rebuild the house of God. For a long time, the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel had preached and had prophesied strong messages, messages of woe and judgment and warning about that judgment, and included not only a promise and a prophecy of invasion and then exile, but also the complete destruction of Solomon's temple, the house of God. So coming home now to all of the rubble and the debris of what used to be Jerusalem, God's people can see how true and how perfect God's word and God's promises and prophecies were and are. Haggai, now some 85 years after the initial invasion and all that destruction, he now speaks to about 50,000 Jews. Those are the Jews that Cyrus the Great have allowed to return. And Haggai knows that they have this monumental task of rebuilding the city and its holy temple. Most of you here are familiar with names like Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Joshua, All of these men are a a part of Haggai's message, or at least the context of it. And you'll notice, beloved, that one of the unique aspects of this prophetic message is that Haggai is extremely precise with regards to the calendar. For example, chapter 1, verse 1, look at what it says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month. Well, the second year of Darius, in the first day of the sixth month of that year, would have been September the 1st, 520 B.C. Look at verse 15. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king, that's September the 24th, 520 B.C., chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, that's October 21st, 520 B.C. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord. That's December 24th, 520 B.C., Christmas Eve, 520 years, or 30, 
years before. Now turn ahead to Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah. And that date is November 520 B.C. And then finally, verse 7, it says, Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sabbat, and so on. And so it goes. You say, okay, Pastor, great, but what's that all about? Why all these little details and dates? Well, here's what it's all about. When you put all of these dates on paper and you follow through Haggai and Zechariah, it becomes clear what God wanted to become clear, which is the fact that 14 years after they were sent to rebuild, still the temple hasn't even started. In other words, Haggai was sent to a group of God's people who have done virtually nothing in the past 14 years as a part of what they were supposed to be doing. And beloved, this is a very important fact to understanding the message of this text. For example, go back to Haggai 1, look at verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house lie waste. Now, beloved, understand that the core of God's message to his people here in the book of Haggai is what you and I just read. God is rebuking his people. And he's rebuking them because their priorities and their spirit, if you will, their values are all wrong. For 14 years, now this shows the patience of God, by the way. For 14 years, they kept saying, it's not time. The time is not come. The time is not come. Basically, they're saying it's just too soon. It's too soon that the Lord's house should be built. So guess what? They didn't. They didn't really build it. They had no plans really to build it. The only thing is, during those 14 years, they did have time. And they did have money. And they did have the energy to build their own houses. You see the word sealed there in verse 4? It's talking about the roof of a house. But the Hebrew word specifically refers to expensive paneling that's laid for the ceiling on the inside. In other words, God says, look, is it, it's time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed and fancy homes while God's house stays undone and unfinished. You see, according to Ezra chapter number 3, the only work that had been done to this point during those 14 years is sort of the laying of the foundation. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen a, a, a foundation that was poured or a slab and it just sits there for 16, 14 years, it's an eyesore. I don't know who's responsible for the, uh, the construction on the new restaurant next to CVS over here by the turnpike. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I was told that that's supposed to be a Mexican restaurant owned by the uh, Rancho Chico guys. And I don't know. I don't know. Does this fall under the town of Jupiter, Rich? What is this, your deal? I don't, he's not going to answer because it probably does. Is it town of Jupiter or is it Palm Beach County? As Jupiter, okay, so uh, we want some answers. I mean, Mexican food, tacos, enchiladas. I know these guys are holding it up or something. They probably ran out of money. Who knows? All I know, either way, I was excited. Now driving by, I'm really annoyed. It's an eyesore. Imagine if it sat there for 14 years and knowing the town of Jupiter. I'm just kidding, Rich. I'm just joking with you. 
What's really pitiful in the days of Haggai was the people's attitude. And God knew their attitude. He knows their hearts. For all of their reasoning, and I'm sure they had lots of reasons, it isn't time to build it. It isn't time. It just isn't time. Well, God knew their hearts. And what he knew is that they didn't really care about the work of God. But what really mattered, what they did care about, were their own homes. Their own houses. I can understand that to a degree. But notice what God says, verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and ye bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, God's people don't realize this, but their attitude toward the work of God was so offensive to him that he refused to bless their labors. You're going to see that in a few moments. Their wages were not sufficient for them to save money. Their much sowing in the fields that takes work and labor and planning only yielded a little fruit. It was as if they were always struggling and just constantly lagging behind. And God's message was, think about it. Consider your ways. Think about your heart. Think about your attitude while you lay in your house and you look up at your fancy paneled ceiling. You see, folks, it's not so much that God has to have a building. That God has to have a fancy temple to dwell in. Because guess what? He does not. He said as much in his word. It was the heart of the people. It was ultimately their selfish, short-sighted attitude that stirred up his wrath after 14 years. After all, isn't a building that would be used for worship in that case, Jesus called it the house of prayer, isn't a building that's used for ministry as important as a building that's used to sleep in? Isn't a shelter that's used for worship as important as a shelter used for eating? Watching television. One of the reasons it's believed that these Jews didn't want to finish the temple is because they didn't want to start the sacrifices and they didn't want to have to start bringing in all of their offerings. So that you can see that in every way possible, their apathy only revealed what was really in their heart. Sacrifice and offerings were to be brought to the house of God that needed to be built. And all three of those, sacrifices, offerings, and building a house, all of those cost something. Well, permit me as your pastor to just park on this for just a moment. The temple that Haggai was concerned with obviously doesn't exist anymore. However, the attitude of the people at that time does exist. Not so much in this room, obviously, but it does exist. It's the attitude that says, I would never put this piece of furniture in my house, so let's give it to the church. They can use it. It's the attitude that says, I'd never have that in my living room or in my car, but I will at the church and certainly in the church van. It's the attitude that says, my kids will never wear these tattered clothes, so I'm going to send them to the missionary's kids. And the missionary gets them. My favorite story of all the missionary stories I've ever heard is Brother Howard Wentz. 
getting peanut butter from people in the United States of America, the peanut butter jars were empty. But they figured there's just enough in there for missionaries to use. Now, I'm not saying peanut butter, no peanut butter, whatever. I'm saying that there's something wrong with that kind of a heart attitude. It's also the attitude that says, I'll drop a hundred bucks in a heartbeat at a carnival or a concert or a boxing match, but not a dollar to the guest missionary. That's just an attitude thing. The mission, God doesn't need your dollar, but he wants your heart. I, it reminds me of the old story, you've heard it, about the, the worn bills at the Federal Reserve Bank that were going to be retired. They do that every so often, as you know, and these worn bills are traveling down the, the conveyor belt and they struck up a conversation and the, the $100 Benjamin bill, he said to an old worn out dollar bill, he said, well, I've had a good life. I've traveled the world. It's been great. I've been to the finest restaurants and casinos and Broadway shows, even a few Caribbean cruises. How about you? And the dollar bill says, you know, same old thing, church, church, church. <laughs> And the $100 bill looks at him and says, what's a church? It's an old story I heard in 1973, except then from my pastor, it was $20 bills. I'm going to say this again. God doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. You know, when I alluded to people sending missionaries their used stuff, I'm not saying, and I would never think it, that God's servants and God's work are too good for any gift or any widow's might. Jesus took note of that. We had a man in Tennessee drop a desk off at our church, Knoxville Baptist Tabernacle, and that thing must have come through the Civil War. I mean, it was old and beat up, and he had some guys come and bring it to our church to use. He wanted us to have it. And I remember when he came, I hugged him and I said, thank you, brother, and God bless him. And I said, praise the Lord. And I'll tell you why, because I knew him. I'd been to his house many times and that old man was as poor as Job's turkey. And that desk was exactly what he had in his own home. On the other hand, there were other folks in our church in East Tennessee there that had six-figure salaries and beautiful homes and they would try to drop off old junk they would never put in their house for the church. And you know what I say to that? I'm not going to tell you what I say to that. But I can tell you this. Any kind of spirit of apathy and the leftovers. Remember God says you're bringing me the sacrifices and they're the ones that are broken and maimed and hurt. That's just a heart issue. That spirit has been a plague in God's kingdom and God's ministry in the world forever. And while I despise the the excesses of ritualistic religious show and what mainline Catholicism does with all of the, the just the over-the-top and TBN with the over-the-top, of course we do. That doesn't give us an excuse for second-rate, half-hearted, who-cares attitude that hinders the excellency of the gospel. I remember years ago, one of our men came walking into our old auditorium on Center Street many, many years ago. And he had black mud, I don't know where he'd been, but black mud on his boots. And he's boom, 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 walking into our church, and I'm in my office, and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to call his name. I said, hey, 
and he was leaving these big, dirty black prints on the carpet for Dorothy to clean. Now, Dorothy in those days was our cleaning staff lady, and Dorothy didn't hide her convictions, okay, if you know what I mean by that. <laughs> she didn't suffer fools gladly either, which was perfect for her position. And I said, whoa, 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 look. He goes, oh, come on, pastor. He said, I just heard you preach not long ago on bus kids and poor folks are welcome here. And I said, yeah, they are, but you're neither one of those. And I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. If, if, yes, if a bus kid puts gum under our pews, fine, that's one thing. We'll, we'll scrape it off, no big deal. But if you do it, or your teenage daughter does it, and I said, I mean this, I'm going to turn Dorothy loose on you. And then he got afraid, and you went and started cleaning up the footprints. <laughs> Amen, Mike? Yeah, Mike knows. That's mom. You see, I don't know, Pastor. I just can't believe that, that the God of heaven, who created the universe with his voice, would be upset about a building. Well, he didn't get upset about a building. It's not the building. I want you to notice the entire three-point message that God gives to his people in order to fix this situation. I mean, this solution to their problem was some deep, deep theological revelation that would immediately set things right. You want to see it? Verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. That's it. That's it right there. God said, I have three points, three commands. Go up the mountain Get the wood and build the house. In other words, just do the job. And when you do the job, this is what's amazing. Verse 8 again, go up to the mountain, bring the wood and build the house. Here it is. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Now, folks, to do what God commanded here was going to take work. Chopping down trees. And bringing them down off of that mountain and then building with them. Guess what that's called? That's called labor. It's work. And so it is with all ministry for the Lord. God's work is God's work. I know you've all heard the story of the preacher in Tennessee who was preaching away about the need for action in their church. We need to get busy. And he said, beloved, hear me. Any church that's going to do anything for God has got to walk and not sit. And the deacon over there said, let her walk, preacher, let her walk. And then he said, the pastor said, and everybody knows, that with the opportunity this church has, we need to run. Amen? And the man over here said, amen, let her run, preacher, let her run. And he said, and once we get to run, and the preacher said, we got to fly to the glory of God. Amen, he said, let her fly. And then the preacher said, but if we're ever going to fly, it's going to take money and work. And the deacon said, let her walk. Let her walk, preacher. Let her walk. I'm going to tell you something, beloved. God's message, this simple thing that he gave in verse 8, all it required was work. Just get up the mountain, get the wood, bring it down. It takes energy, it takes effort and sweat and money to maintain buildings, to remodel a room, to teach a class. To drive a van, to watch the nursery, to practice a choir special, to organize an activity, to teach at council time, to knock on doors, to visit in the nursing homes, to go to the jails, to set up chairs and break down the chairs, ministry in public school week after week after week. 
It takes effort and zeal and sacrifice and mountain climbing. Ministry is work, and work is spiritual. Remember, God gave Adam the task of keeping the garden when it was perfect, before there was sin. And the problem in Haggai was nobody had the heart for it, which is an indication that nobody had the heart for God himself. Nobody really wanted what God said he wanted. Pastor, did God want this building? No. God wanted their heart. And if he had their heart, he would have their worship in that building. Look at verse 9. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains, upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which is ground, ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. God says, did you ever stop to think about why it was that you couldn't get anywhere? That I was the one, God said, who didn't send the rain and the blessing. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that. On, that's a sobering thought. The poverty and the drought in the land was divine judgment. It was sent from heaven or withheld from heaven because of their laissez-faire attitude toward the work of God. The good news is Haggai's prophecy brought the quickest and the most tangible results of all in all the minor prophets except maybe for Jonah. You know why? Because in 23 days, now think, 14 years have passed. In 23 days, for the first time in 14 years, people started to actually work. They finally treated God's work with some of the same enthusiasm that they had created their home and their own work. Look at verse 12, would you? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, and the Lord their God had sent them, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. What does it mean, the spirit? It means their heart. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now at this point, of course, there's all kinds of excitement. And there's some enthusiasm for God's work and God's ministry. People are putting their hand to the plow. But folks, obviously in a group this size, not everyone has their heart in it. Not everyone recognizes yet the difference between a building and a burden or a blessing. So, chapter 2. Let's follow this carefully. Verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now follow this carefully. I mean, God is really revealing his heart, isn't he? Say, what do you mean? All right discouragement set in 
You may remember over in Ezra chapter 3, the Bible says that when they started building and they looked at it and they stood back, that the old men wept and the young men rejoiced. And the old men wept because they remembered Solomon's temple. I mean, it was the crystal cathedral. It was gorgeous. And, and they could really show it off to the world. And the young men, so the old men wept, the young men, they shouted. And God himself says in verse 3, Who is left among you that saw her house in the first glory? See verse 3? And how do you see it now? He's trying to provoke them to thought. Zechariah is told with Haggai to encourage these people. He said, I want you to encourage these builders to go ahead and finish it. They've been told that this temple's nothing. It's nothing in compared to the old one. And it's true. It didn't compare to Solomon. Solomon's temple was a massive jewel box. And this is like in comparison a barn. And God said, tell the people this. Finish it. Because I'm with them. I'm with them. God didn't want Solomon's temple. God didn't even want Solomon's temple when it was Solomon's temple. God wanted their heart. He wanted their worship. Look at verse 9. The glory of this latter house, God says, shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, wait a minute. Again, this is God encouraging his people. What's he mean by this? How is it possible that this temple that they just built has more glory than Solomon's temple? Well, first of all, the obvious reason is that this is a prophecy here of the millennial temple. But in addition to that, King Herod constructed that temple by remodeling Zerubbabel's here, what Zerubbabel starts. And it was here that Jesus himself, think about it, God incarnate would come to this spot the Lord Jesus would walk in and in that temple would say, I am the light of the world. From that spot, he would say, I am the living water. And one of these days, on that very spot, the Lord Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. That's the promise. In the meantime, God wants us to understand, beloved, what he wanted Haggai to teach his people. It's not sacrifices. You're trying to... Pastor, are you trying to give this because you want us to give more? It's not sacrifices. The Bible says in Psalm 51, 17, Thou desirest not sacrifice the sa or burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. That's what God wants when you walk in that door. Haggai could not rebuild Solomon's temple. The fact is nobody could. But they could do something. They could have done something 14 years ago, 13 years ago, 12 years ago. They could do something if they had the heart for it, if they had a heart for God. And when they got that sincere heart, they could do what they could. And when they could do whatever they could, I see, our, I see slides of our missionaries and you know, go to South Africa or Africa and so forth. And you see, you see them like sweeping these dirt floors. And they're putting up the best they can. But the video we saw Brother Juan the other day, digging the footings. You know what they're doing? They're doing the best they can with what they have because they have a heart for God. And the Lord says, I'm there. I'm with you. 
In some ways, it reminds me of people who think any kind of a pattern or culture in a local church is, quote, legalism. That, that, for example, a culture of modesty is legalism. Well, it could be if somebody's doing that in order to earn salvation, which is what legalism really is. But for me, it's always a matter of the heart. You know, the golf club or the office or the restaurant or the courtroom or the airline, they might require and enforce a culture or a certain standard. And very few people object to that. But looking at God's work as more important as I do and you do, as the golf club or dinner, it might lead a contrite heart to say, he's worthy of my best, not my worst, not the leftovers, that God is worthy of more than that. When Haggai gave this prophecy and God issued his desires to the people and let them know his heart, this book ends without knowing how well they follow through. They finish this, but God's really letting them know, if you'll read the book, there's more, much more of their heart they could give him. It's the next two books, Zechariah, Malachi, that help answer that question. But it's really 400 years later. When the Lord Jesus walks into the temple and he sees the money changers. Jesus came from a poor family. His own parents had to use what poor people would use as sacrifices. And would come in. And of course, they would, they would extort money out of these poor people. By making them exchange the unclean Gentile money into clean money. And then by charging them for these exorbitant rates for these, these cheap sacrifices. And the Bible says that Jesus walked in and he looked about. Remember that text? He, he looked around. And then with some of the twine that was used to wrap the crates of the sacrifices, he takes and he makes a whip. This is our Savior. And what does he do? He drives the money changers out of the temple. Why? Because they didn't have a heart for God. And they didn't have a heart for God's people. They were making, Jesus called this a house, he said, my, this is my father, he said, this is a house of prayer, you've made it a den of thieves. All I'm saying tonight is this, God wants this place to be a house of prayer, just like the temple, and a witness to the lost, to the Gentiles, in the case of the Jews. It is a place where people who have a heart for God, that's why I've said many times since 1987, there are no big shots here. We're all a bunch of little shots glorifying one God and one Savior. And a people who come together who have a heart for Him and simply want to glorify His name and rejoicing in this fact and this truth, His promise is, I am with you. I am with you. You know, I, people ask me sometimes, because we have guest speakers who come here and they say, they'll get up here in the pulpit, you've heard them, they say, man, when I got here, these buildings are beautiful. They're just beautiful. And people have asked me, Pastor, what do you think about that? Honestly, it doesn't mean a lot to me. It doesn't. What would mean a lot to me in a negative way is if people came here and they said, boy, that place is run down. That place is dirty. That place is not kept up. Because that is a reflection on a people whose heart just aren't concerned about the things of God.
Well, I say, if God is with us, when I was in Bible college, I had a professor, and he used to say this at the beginning of every class, God's business, and we would have to repeat it, is the greatest business in all the world. God's business is the greatest business in all the world. That was ingrained in me, and as I read the heart of God, he's not interested in buildings, he's interested in the hearts, because his business is the greatest business in all the world. And God's people said, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And I pray that we will look at your work, your ministry, your kingdom, that we will look at it as a reflection of your heart, that you want lost people to be saved, you want saved people to glorify you, you want your work to advance for your glory and honor, and you are worthy of it. And I ask, Lord, that here at this church we'll recognize that it's not the building, it's not the property. These will be turned to dust. These will burn in the fire. But inasmuch as this reflects our heart, may we all in this place have a heart for you. Thou desirest not sacrifice and burnt offerings, but a broken and a contrite heart. And I pray we will walk into this place with that at all times, humbly seeking to serve you, to worship you, and to labor for your kingdom. We'll praise you for the fruit that remains because of it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.